Welcome to episode 167 of The Digital Life, a show about our insights into the future of design and technology. I'm your host, John Follett. This week on the podcast, we'll embark on the first in a special series of episodes put together in conjunction with our friends at the GET conference on the cutting edge of research science and technology. In this week's episode, we're exploring the topic of open science with interviews with Brian Bott and John Wilbanks of Sage Bio Networks, Alexander Waitzeranek from the Personal Genome Project and Curoverse, and Tim Arrington from the Center of Open Science. The GET Conference is on the front lines of the open science movement, seeking to make scientific research and data accessible to both professionals and citizens. We'll start with our interview with Brian Bott and John Wilbanks describing their endeavors at Sage Bionetworks. So I'm uh, Brian Bott at Sage Bionetworks. I'm a principal scientist and community manager there. John Wilbanks, I'm the chief commons uh, officer at Sage Bionetworks. That's great. So tell us a little bit about what Sage Bionetworks does. So we're a nonprofit uh, organization that uh, tries to do sort of two things. One is to bring some of the same capacity increase in scientific analysis that we've seen in software development over the past 15, Mm -hmm. 20 years. So reusable architectures, community development, some of the sort of open source culture that you see where if you want to build a website, you don't have to start from scratch anymore. If you want to build an app, you don't have to start from scratch. There's frameworks. And in science, it's not like that. Uh, People start from scratch almost every time. And so we host uh, a set of technical platforms that make it possible to do sort of large-scale collaborative community science. Oh, that's great. And what's the genesis of your company and your philosophy? Sort of when did it get started? What was the motivation behind it? And what has the evolution looked like? So we were founded in 2009 as a nonprofit spinning out of Merck Pharmaceuticals. Mm. Uh, it was the Rosetta Informatics unit at Merck, which was uh, looking at sort of large-scale associations between genetic variation and observed health, more or less. And when it became uh, clear that uh, lots more work was needed, lots more time was needed, lots more sample size was needed, Merck decided to spin it out into a nonprofit, which became Sage Bionetworks. Um, and since then, we've, we've sort of had these twin philosophies of we want to bring some of these methodology changes, these collaborative methodology changes, and then the political aspect, which is creating large enough pools of open data that you don't have to go rent data from companies if you want to start doing innovative science. Mm-hmm. And how do, you, how do you settle on the pools of data to include? Are you just openly inclusive, or is there an editing, vetting process? What, is, what does that look like? Yeah, so we, we tend to focus on, on areas where uh, incentives need to be aligned and there needs to be sort of a, a neutral arbiter uh, that can step in and provide guidance to disparate parties. So we have a number of examples where we're working with funding agencies as well as academics uh, and, and pharmaceutical companies as well. And the, the key is to focus on areas where it makes sense for all of those groups to be working with one another. Mm-hmm. Um, that oftentimes ends up being in the pre-competitive space in uh, drug development is one example, um, where pharmaceutical in- industry uh, might be interested in cost sharing early on. Um, and so they're actually very, very interested in making data broadly available such that uh, they can compete later on. They can sort of crowdsource, if you will, the target discovery aspects of it. But later in the stage, when the targets are developed, um, they can compete to um, develop drugs against those targets. And another, another example would be, um, so we work with a bunch of groups in colorectal cancer. Mm. 
And this was something where we sort of assembled the group. Um, some of our some of our scientists noticed that, that multiple papers were published in one year in different journals, each of which claimed to have the canonical genetic subtyping for colorectal cancer, but of course all of them had different subtypes. Yeah. Because they had different samples, they had different populations, and they were using different math. Yeah. And so the idea was let's go talk to all of them and ask them, what if you pooled all of your data? So that, you know, and only people who contributed data could see it. Yeah. And then each of you could run your math on pooled data and see how it looks at scale. Yeah. And then as neutral arbiters, right, we will help build a consensus analysis that uses the best pieces of every, every algorithm on all of the data. Um, and, and so after we got the first four groups, I think nine more petitioned to join, right, because then they didn't want to get left out. Yeah. And so that's a place where you have, you have alignment. Um, because it's, it's an area where no one has large enough samples and the methods are early enough that there's a real value just pooling it and doing consensus stuff. Yeah. But if, if they were worried that we were literally their competitor, they wouldn't trust us to be like Switzerland. Yeah, right. You've mentioned a few times sort of the openness, the open philosophy and how you're doing business that way. You're a nonprofit but still doing business in a certain way. Um, but you're a spinoff of Merck and usually companies the size of Merck are not um, driven by openness in quite the same way. So has openness always been something that's core to what you're doing from inception, or is that something you've developed over time? It's, it's been since inception. Um, I think it's one of the reasons they were willing to spin us out. <laughs> yeah. they did, uh, we actually have a presentation on the website, which is a presentation that our founder <laughs> made to the Merck Board of Directors before the spin out, basically advocating for a giant Wikipedia of open human genomes. And... Uh, and so you can go look at the presentation that was made, and their, their reaction was, "That's nice. You can take that and, and make it a nonprofit." Um, and they were actually, and they were very generous in the spin out, right? They, yeah. they 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 helped you know staff transition. They gave assets. Um, so it was a gen- it wasn't just a trivial thing. They actually put some work into it. Mm-hmm. But um, they uh, from the very beginning of the org, the idea was that openness and collaboration, right? Openness was the political collaboration was the methodology. And that those two things together were going to be more powerful than either one alone. Next, we'll hear from Tim Arrington from the Center for Open Science. I'm Tim Arrington. I'm from the Center for Open Science. Excellent. And what kind of work are you doing at the Center for Open Science? So the Center for Open Science, we're a nonprofit organization that's mission is to increase the openness, reproducibility, and integrity of scientific research across all disciplines. Um, We do that through three main activities. Um, Infrastructure, so technology development, building a tool uh, to allow researchers to collaborate, document, share. So essentially a scholarly commons that's free and open source. Um, We do community activity that's working with different stakeholders in the community, so journals, funders, researchers, to try to align our practices with our values, our our ideals. Mm -hmm. Uh, So basically trying to shift that incentive structure to reward open practices, reward um, reproducible practices. Um, And then the area that I lead at the Center for Open Science, which is meta-science research, so research on research. Uh, Right now we do that currently looking at... uh, uh, previous research, so reproducibility studies. Uh, we just finished one last year in psychology where we replicated 100 different psychology studies. Um, and I'm leading one currently right now in preclinical cancer biology research where we're trying to replicate, directly replicate previously published research to better understand the challenges that are associated with that and actually what's our replicability rate. Yeah, I think the word, um, when I think of this conference and the people we've spoken with, that, that most captures the zeitgeist is openness. Yes. And I'm curious, um, you know, this is obviously a, a bubble is it a bubble that is reflective of the greater scientific community in the areas you're participating in, or are you the exception? Because certainly in the for-profit technology world, 
openness is the exception. Um, that it's a, a few people are really um, behind, but most companies are still very closed. What, what does it look like in your scientific communities? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so I think you're right in the sense that it's a bit of a bubble. It's very much a bubble. It's um, definitely more the exception than the rule. A lot of that's because there's there's no incentive for it. Um, there's not. It, it, it's it's got to be a culture that brings it up, and it's got to be a system that rewards you when you do it. And we don't see that right now. Uh, mm-hmm. Right now, our present culture rewards us for flashy big discoveries that get us the big papers. Yeah. Uh, those papers don't have to be open. Those papers don't have to be re- reproducible. They yeah. just have to be the big story. And then that gets you the grant, gets you the promotion, and it cycles. So there's not really a reward for it. Um, but I think one thing is that you can still embody open principles by doing your research transparently, even if it's closed. Yeah. Um, and so we we try to make sure that, and, you, and we've heard this here at the conference, the same thing, you respect that private-public workflow. You respect the fact that you can't always share something or maybe somebody's just not ready to share that. Yeah. Um, but you should still make sure that you're embodying those open principles throughout it. And hopefully you can start to have those incentives or have that ability to just say, oh, well, maybe this one time I'll, I'll share and see what happens. I think there's a lot of culture of, oh, I'm afraid someone's going to take my idea mm-hmm. and they're going to get the credit instead of I get the credit. But I think if you can kind of play with that in this, you know, public-private setting, allow the individual, the researcher, to try it out, um, hopefully the culture says it's okay, it's not going to happen. Um, but until then, I think still remembering that there's open practices in what we do anyways, whether you never share it, um, we can't forget that. We'll wind up this episode with some thoughts from Alexander Waitzeranek of the Personal Genome Project and Curoverse on the importance of open science and its benefits. I'm Alexander Waitzeranek. Everybody calls me Sasha. I'm a co-founder of the Harvard Personal Genome Project and the chief scientist at a startup called Curiverse. Uh, all of the software we write is, is uh, free and open source software. Uh, you don't have to pay us anything to use it. Um, and we have venture capital backing. And our investors really believe that there's an interesting and, and really large business here. But I think that one of the the most important mechanisms to ensuring that everyone gets to participate in these technical benefits is the support uh, internationally of uh, free and open source software and more broadly free knowledge standards. Uh, Things like Wikipedia uh, is an example of a free knowledge artifact. And so uh, what can then happen is that is that the wealthiest organizations in society uh, pay a lot of uh, the initial development costs for this free software and free knowledge. But because there are no strings attached, much poorer places can follow on and adapt that software to their needs. And if they can't afford the uh, price points that are... That are uh, charged in the more uh, wealthy clients, then that's okay because they can, they can just proceed at their own pace. Yeah. Uh, and so there's a natural uh, equilibrium that's achieved. And, and what tends to happen today uh, without this kind of um, mechanism is that these technologies stay proprietary because it's the only way to get investors to pay for them. Yeah. But then... Customers that would never buy the technology just get left out. So there's no there's no point of restricting people who are never going to pay for the thing from not having it. I mean, if you can make the business 
model work. Yeah. Then, then, then the, and, and so free software and free knowledge, I think, is the, is the sort of core to doing this kind of redistribution. And I think that, um, you know, I'm, I'm quite pleased with my uh, contribution to the Global Alliance for Genomics and Health, which is a, a standards organization very similar to the World Wide Web Consortium. Uh, here in Boston that's, that's kind of helped make the internet possible. Uh, that organization is really trying to build these kinds of standards and we're really, um, we're really working with them to ensure that, that all of their standards are implemented in sort of commercially supported free software. Uh, so, you know, very long answer, but, but, but I do think that that is a part of, uh, maybe even a core part of the, of the solution to making sure that um, people don't get left out. Oh, that was a wonderful answer, and I'm glad to hear it because as I've gotten older, I've become very cynical that the people with the money and the power will will forever disadvantage the rest of us. So. Well, we have some say in the matter, so we should we should take advantage. You know, we should put our work in, in, in achieving that. Amen, amen, brother. Listeners, remember that while you're listening to the show, you can follow along with the things we are mentioning here in real time. Just head over to the digitallife.com, that's just one L in the digital life, and go to the page for this episode. We've included links to pretty much everything mentioned by everybody, so it's a rich information resource to take advantage of while you are listening, or afterward if, you, if you're trying to remember something that you liked. You can find links to the complete interviews and others from the GET conference in the resources section for this episode. You can find the digital life on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Player FM, and Google Play. And if you'd like to follow us outside of the show, you can follow me on Twitter at John Follett. That's J-O-N-F-O-L-L-E-T-T. And of course, the whole show is brought to you by Involution Studios, which you can check out at goinvo.com. That's G-O-I-N-V-O.com. So that's it for episode 167 of The Digital Life. I'm John Follett, and I'll see you next time.